I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the DMs, DMs of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Hey folks, uh, welcome to DMs of Vancouver. Uh, today we're going to be talking DM 101, Building Encounters. Uh, an encounter can be combat or otherwise, but it's a challenge that players must overcome using either their character's skills or their own problem-solving skills. Today we're going to be talking to our friend Jason Romain about this. Jay has been DMing for 20 years and has entered three Iron DM competitions on through N-World, um, yeah. and he has indeed uh, won one of those competitions. Uh, those competitions pit DMs head-to-head, and they have to build entire adventures of a certain length using certain elements, and the judges pick which one is better. That sounds pretty awesome. I think we've got a good person to talk to. <laughs> Hello. So, uh, it How's definitely it sounds like you've got plenty of experience building encounters. I've built a few. Um, <laughs> with 20 years of experience, I'd hope so. So, first things first, for... A brand new DM, somebody who is looking at the rules and looking at putting together their first session, what are some of the basic things that they should be thinking about when designing their first encounter? There's a lot you can do with an encounter. There's a lot of ground it covers. Anytime your PCs come up against adversity, it's basically an encounter. I'm going to focus mostly on the combat side of things, but we are going to talk about social and uh, other types of encounters. When it comes to putting adversity in the path of the players, I keep coming back to a guiding principle. Who are these guys? Why are they here? How do they feel about it? That sort of thing is going to inform every other step of your encounter process. For instance, like the difference between a patrol of guards just out doing their jobs versus a band of hired mercenaries coming to kill the PCs versus somebody who the PCs murdered their father and they're coming in for revenge. Those are three very different groups of encounters and that will have a trickle-down effect. That will inform how they attack, how they engage the party, what the tone of the encounter is. Can be very exciting. So, uh, what are some pointers for a new DM who's looking to actually balance an encounter for the party's composition? Composition here could be something as simple as like what classes are they playing. It could be. It could also mean like you've got three brand new players. This is going to be their first session, and one veteran, or you've got a party of five veterans. Like, I know there's a lot of variables in there, but just any like tips or pointers for people putting together encounters to think about when they're looking to balance it for composition. So there's definitely a lot of variables. The Dungeon Master's Guide on page 82 has an encounter guideline. It tells you roughly how much XP worth of monsters each PC can handle. It breaks it down into an easy encounter, medium encounter, hard encounter, and a deadly encounter. So those are very good things to be aware of. They are just guidelines because the... the challenge rating of a monster is not always equal, as we'll see in a bit. Um, But what you do is you take the number they give you. For instance, if I had a third level PC, an easy encounter is 75 XP, 150 for medium, 225 for hard, and 400 for deadly. If I have four PCs, I just multiply the number by four. If I have five PCs, multiply by five. And that gives you a good idea roughly how much XP 
you can throw at your party. There's a lot of good information on that page in the DMG, so it's definitely worth a read. If I can interject there, uh, definitely worth a read. Yes. Uh, I ran, for you actually, and my other part players, a uh, six-player party, and there are also specific, <laughs> hidden in one of the paragraphs, are specific rules outlining what you should do for once you get there, because it actually changes the way you have to mechanically build the encounters for it them does. to be effective. I, I just use Kobold Fight Club because it does all the math for me. <laughs> Yeah, PCs, uh, especially when you get above five PCs, they have a cumulative effect. So the difference between four and five PCs is not as much as the difference between five and six, because each PC is basically a force multiplier, and they all synergize well, and they will all work together to take down your monsters very quickly. I would advise, if you are a new DM DMing for the first time, don't run with six. Run with five. Or, or if you can, a four, because I've, I've found as a new DM, sometimes even five players can be a little bit too much. Oh, yeah, they definitely can. Like, even as an experienced DM, I've run games with six players, and they are, oh, they are a handful. And, you know, everyone gets less uh, less time in the spotlight as well. That's uh, not ideal. Well, and it, it makes it more difficult to effectively kind of remember what all your party members can do, right? If you're remembering four or five people, you can kind of keep a good grip on what everyone can do, but once you start adding like six, seven people, it's just yep. too many variables. Yeah, definitely, which actually brings me to my next point. Uh, you want to recognize your party's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, if your party is all barbarians and they don't have a bow to their name, you don't want to put a lot of ranged attackers against them. It's just not going to be fun. Uh, if you have a party of all, well, barbarians again, and they aren't very mentally strong, you don't want to put a bunch of monsters that have mental stun powers that'll require them to, uh, uh, like Mind Flayers, for instance. Um, you just want to tailor your encounter so that your party actually has a chance for success, because your job as the DM is not to beat your players. That is very easy to do. You can just crank up the challenge rating and put a ton of monsters down. As a DM, winning is easy. Having your PCs have a lot of fun, that's your goal. And that's the hard part. Absolutely. And that's why we're talking about balancing encounters. So you want to make sure you're tailoring your encounters to what your PCs can do. So against a party of all barbarians, improbable though it might be, they love a slug it out melee fight. They love to get up close and personal and have lots of foes they can cut down. They love facing off against another big target. If your party has a lot of spellcasters getting into a, a battle of spells where they can counter spell, where there's magical puzzles, all that kind of stuff, you can really tailor things. Quick question there, though. When you're dealing with a party of players who have resources, like when you're looking at like fighters and rogues, like they can kind of consistently do a certain amount of damage. But then you, like with sorcerers, wizards, clerics, they've suddenly got this very limited resource, and if it's their first fight of the day, they might be popping off spells like it's no big deal. But if, especially at lower levels, a wizard might be kind of pissed if it's the third fight of the day and all they can do is throw their one dagger, go pick it up, and throw it again. So how, how do you deal with... Dealing with like balance when you've got players that have their entire arsenal of skills is built around a very limited resource. So 5th edition uh, definitely helps out with that 
with uh, spellcasters having cantrips. Uh, so they'll never have to throw just daggers. Uh, at the same time, the cantrips aren't flashy. The cantrips aren't all that much fun compared to the big spells. Uh, you definitely do run into situations where characters have a limited arsenal of tools, and that's something the DM has to recognize when they're putting together their encounters. They have to look and see, am I throwing too much too often? Like, the first encounter of the day, the PCs are fresh, they might be able to overcome it, but they might not be able to overcome something of that difficulty Yeah, that's, that's repeatedly. That's kind of been my understanding and what I've kind of started to internalize with the challenge ratings with the like easy to deadly is Mm -hmm. that the first deadly encounter after a long rest it's probably going to be pretty easy but the if you if you keep throwing deadly encounters one of them (laughs) will live up to the name very true the challenge um in in general you want to put mostly easy and medium encounters against your party and save the hard and even the deadly encounters for encounters that really are supposed to hit hard. Like if the PCs are traveling through the woods and stumble onto some random goblins, having that be a deadly encounter just doesn't make sense. Unless unless that's the game you're running, in which case, more power to you. But most PCs aren't going to want to encounter, you know, a deadly band of goblins. Right. Uh, it, it just doesn't make sense. It makes the world a very hostile place, and it means that your PCs are going to go out of town get beat up by some goblins, limp back to town, rest up, and go back out, and same, the cycle repeats. Right. So now that you've kind of figured out, um, the you've, ba- you've balanced an encounter, um, and you've figured out, okay, this is these are the monsters, this is the challenge rating, this is the XP. Maybe this is just because I tend to be a little bit more of a storyteller, I found, over the, the past year of DMing, is I like encounters to have a little bit of a story structure like there's the introduction of like hey you this is why you're fighting there's like the middle action and then there's the like climax and it kind of follows the like same structure as like a movie just really compressed into like you know a 30 or you know hour-long battle depending on how many people are in it (laughs) how is that something that you do and if it is how is it how do you do it so that depends a lot on what kind of encounter we're talking about. The story structure is going to be informed a lot by your group of monsters. Who are they? Why are they here? And how do they feel about it? If you have a just a band of goblins that are wandering through the woods and they happen upon some adventurers, then there's, there's not a lot of complex story elements. If, however, the uh, characters are tracking down a necromancer to their lair and they kick in the door and the necromancer is, you know, completing his ritual and summoning his undead armies to defend him while he finishes the last steps, that has a lot more story uh, layered on top of it. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a few things. I think a lot of it comes down to set dressing and how you approach it. So I've actually prepared an encounter here <laughs> that I'm going to be running Excellent. in an upcoming group. Uh, so I have six goblins and a bugbear who are a band of, you know, up to no good. So what I have is these goblins have been watching a local path and watching merchants travel their wagons back and forth. And they've thought, hey, we could take them. So they have set out to ambush one of these wagons, and the PCs are going to come upon this ambush in progress. 
they're going to come in and see the goblins uh, who aren't actually necessarily going to notice the PCs at first, but the goblins are firing arrows and there's a merchant up on top of the wagon hiding, taking cover and pelting them with rocks when he can get away with it, but otherwise completely terrified. Well, the bugbear just kind of stands back being a lazy bugbear and laughs while his goblins do his dirty work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so you can see there's a story already developed. The PCs come in, they can see very clearly what's happening, and turning the tables on the goblins would be a lot of fun. That's the, the story hook then, is you've come upon an ambush, do you want to turn the tables? Like that's, yeah. that's what hooks them into like initiating this encounter. Absolutely. Because so they could sit back and wait till the goblins are finished and then rob the wagon from the goblins if they were a more evil party. I think more likely they're going to step in and they might then help the merchant back to town, they might demand their own payment from the merchants. What they do is completely up to the PCs, but there's already something interesting going on, and there's something interesting that they can engage with. Jay, uh, what steps do you take when designing an arena, or the arena that a combat encounter will take place at? When I'm designing an encounter area, I love making a very interesting area that there's a lot of, like terrain features that it can use. I think having different entrances and exits from an area is very important because then as PCs, you're never sure exactly where is safe in the room. It could be that the door you pick to back up against opens up and there's reinforcements coming in. I also try to make vertical uh, terrain a big part of it. So I like to have balconies. I think it's very interesting to uh, offer opportunities for vertical play. Because that's something that uh, a lot of a lot of people kind of let slip by. But there's a lot of classes that are built to take advantage of vertical play. A lot of spells as well. If your wizard can fly, he'll really appreciate being able to use vertical perches to stay out of the melee. If your rogue can climb at regular speed, like any of the thief archetype rogues can, getting a chance to actually just scramble up a wall can be really rewarding. It also had some physical, uh, some visual, some tactical interest. If you're, uh, if you have a balcony and a couple of like skeletal archers step out and they're firing and they're using the balcony rail as cover and they're pelting arrows down, but it's just as interesting if the PCs come out on the balcony overlooking a whole horde of melee monsters and can take advantage of that. I think it's very important when you're designing terrain features to have them be neutral, have them be something that the players can use and the monsters can use. Like, don't build anything that the players have no way to use against the monsters. Fortifications, you want the players to be able to actually get in there. If they manage to uh, get a better tactical position, they can use it. Okay, then, uh, in your goblin bugbear encounter, what are some things that the players could use. So something I was thinking of, uh, first off, they have the wagon itself, and the wagon has a perch on top where the merchant is, but any of the PCs could also get up top and use that as a, as a high ground. They can take cover up there, so that's one thing. In addition, the goblins in my encounter have dug small five-foot trenches off hidden in the bushes off to either side. The ones that are back in the woods, because goblins are very nimble and very uh, hidey kind of creatures and so they'll be firing from the woods where you can't tell their numbers and you can't clearly see them and if the PCs go blundering off they could fall into those pits 
but they're open pits. They could just as easily push the goblins into them as well. When it when it comes to stuff like that, though, like stuff that is at the start of an encounter, it's going to be hidden from the players or requires like an action to use. Like maybe there's candelabras that if they pull this specific switch, it'll drop it on the monsters. How do you, for stuff that is just kind of out in the open but requires the players looking and finding it, like how do you how do you help the players find those options? And when it comes to the stuff that's hidden, how do you decide how hidden they are? Like if do, you, do dealing with like passive perception and all like all that stuff, like how do you decide when a player will notice a thing? That's a tough question. D and D doesn't always do a great job of uh, handling when something like that becomes visible. Uh, passive perception is probably your best tool. What I like to do as a DM is write down the passive perceptions of the characters so that they don't have to ask. If you come into this encounter and I say, all right, uh, what's everyone's passive perception? No reason. Then you know something's up. Unless you ask for it every single time. Uh, yes, at which point I might as well just write it down. Yeah, it uh, takes so much time out of that. <laughs> I've, I've played in games like that where it's just like every session for like a two shot or something like that for every encounter it's like what are your passive perceptions again it's and it takes away the momentum yeah you lose all the momentum when you do it so what i'll do is i'll have that where i'll know what the dc is for the pit and in this case it's an open pit it's just uh hidden by being in the bushes so probably a pretty pretty light dc something like uh, 11 or 12 and then any of the pcs that make it on their passive can know about it automatically and can then warn their fellows. It, the point of having something like that isn't to keep it hidden and then to surprise the PCs when they fall into it. The point of having it is so that both parties can use it. So that the battlefield becomes more interesting. It's not just a flat yeah, for sure. space. Well, I guess one thing I'm curious of is if, if, if you have... Do you ever design train features for with a specific character in mind? Like your example of like the wizard being able to fly or the rogue being able to climb. I guess that's where that question was coming from. Because if it's something that I might do in the future, I'm not sure. And if I, I feel like if you design a feature for a character, you want them to know about it. But you don't want to, at the same time, you don't want to be like, hey, Tim, here's your very special terrain feature for this combat encounter. <laughs> yeah, some... Some features are easier to point out than others. Um, so, for instance, if there's a rogue who can climb and he sees a vertical space, that player is going to realize, hey, I can climb that. You, you don't really have to do a lot of urging. Uh, on the other hand, if you want to use a, say, a chandelier that the PCs can swing across on, uh, you just want to describe it. You want to describe it's low enough. You think it's low enough that you could jump to it, maybe, from that balcony. Uh, it, it, I find as DMs, we're so caught up in the need to keep everything close to the chest and the you run the risk of describing this encounter, the PCs don't realize what is there, they don't use it, they win the encounter, and then you're sitting there going, ah, crap. Yeah, or I mean, that was going to be cool. You have things from the other end where, like, you fail to describe something, and the players try to interact with it in a way that wasn't really meant for, like, you know, 
uh, the chandelier is held up, but you don't say what with, and it turns out it's a chain, that's what you had thought in your mind, but someone's like, oh, well, if it's hung up by a rope, I cut the rope and drop it on somebody. And sometimes you can just be like, yes. Yeah. Sometimes. Absolutely. But if you're in the, the spiky black dungeon of evil, like, it's not going to be held up by a rope, but because you forgot to say it, it's kind of like, oh, sorry, buddy. And yeah. you know what? It's it's one of those things where if the player's going to have more fun if they cut the chandelier down. If you say, well, sorry, it's not really... Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to buy an extra round of life out of your monster? And I, and, I guess, and I guess at that point you could always say, like, it's actually made of change, but you spot a, spot a weak one. Like, there's there's ways to still well, have yeah. it be chained, but they can do the thing. Yeah. Maybe, maybe if you roll high enough, you can, like, cut the chain. It depends a little bit on the group, too. Some groups want more granularity to it. Some groups want to have more fun. But the more I've DM'd, the more I find that you don't remember the encounters where, like, the ones you remember are the ones where you did cut the chandelier down, and it came down with a huge crash and lit the Goblin Chief on fire, and, like, those are the ones you remember and talk about later. You want your PCs to try things that are not just, okay, I rolled to a hit. So I will tend to encourage that sort of play in the strongest possible sense. If they try that, not only are they going to get a lot of damage, but they'll get a chance to light them on fire, or they'll get a chance to uh, knock them prone, or you they're, know they're trapped or whatever. Uh, if if it's going to be something that's really powerful, I might ask them for a skill check to do it. Mm-hmm. So maybe a perception check to notice uh, a certain way to hit the rope, or if they're jumping too and trying to cut it down, maybe an acrobatics check. There's a great technique too where where I've seen the player can offer something to the DM. This is depends a little bit on how the DM wants to run their table, but where the player will say, it's like, can I jump to the chandelier? And the DM will say, sure. And then the player's like, can I cut down the chandelier if I make an acrobatics check? So it's the player that's like, and jump off of it. And that's the player that's bringing that to the DM's attention. And the player can also say, and if I fail, I fall prone. I or feel I go down with the chandelier. Yeah, but I feel I feel like that's one of those tricky situations because I've it's so, something I've read about that I try very hard to push back against, which is the I roll perception. What do I see? Roll R O L L playing, not role playing. Like I'm okay with a player saying like, "Hey, I want to try and like jump onto this chandelier and then swing it and then jump off at the apex and cut it." And like I go, "Okay, well that's." like we'll say that's your action to do that whole thing and here's like you make two rolls and if one of them fails you're kind of boned but the players who will come in and say i want to roll acrobatics to try and do this thing like i want to hear what they're going to do rather than what they're rolling i feel like it's a kind of a trick like a weird not a slippery slope but just it's you you have to train your players a little bit to you have to recognize what sort of players you have i've had True. Like we've, it's it's very easy for a group to fall into a rut mechanically where nothing outside of I roll to hit, ideal damage is acceptable. And if, as the DM, if you don't look for opportunities, then it can really easily become just. Um, if every time my players say, "Okay, I'm gonna try and swing on this chandelier and cut it down." And I go, okay, yeah, uh, roll acrobatics. Uh, you're going to fall with the chandelier, and you'll take 
uh, 4d6 falling damage. If I do that every time, then they're going to stop looking for those opportunities. They're just going to go, oh, okay, well, I'm better off just regularly attacking. Yeah, I think I think for me, the thing is, like, I definitely want players to do cool things. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like, there has to be some consequences. Otherwise, why are you rolling dice? I think a good rule is you can't do the same thing multiple times. Okay, uh, you want it to be a trick where you can't go back to the well and can't do it repeatedly. Pulling us a little bit uh, back <laughs> on topic. Yes. Because we've gotten a bit away from encounter building. Jay, how do you design non-combat encounters like puzzles or social encounters? Yes. How do you approach that? Puzzles, uh, I use the internet. <laughs> it really, the internet has uh, a great wealth of puzzles available that are far smarter than I could ever come up with. And, you know, you have them all at your fingertips. Uh, riddles are a very good puzzle. Something where the PCs have to give the answer to a magical guardian or something. Those can be really good. I guess the thing with puzzles and riddles and stuff like that, my something that I'm a little bit worried about with my game right now is what happens if they just can't figure out the answer? Like, at, at what point do the players not being able to figure something out means their characters can't? At what point do you say give me a role because your character might be able to figure it out even if you can't. Ideally, you don't get to that point. It's very it's very tough. Puzzles are so hard because you like sometimes you just get a puzzle where the answer you're just looking at it the wrong way or you're not thinking through it or maybe you just as the DM knowing the answer you'd realize, "Oh, this looks easy." And then the PCs are just struggling with it. I tend to err on the side of easier puzzles and easier riddles because getting it quickly is a lot better than getting bogged down in it. Um, The other thing I do, and I can't emphasize this strongly enough, I do not put the puzzle on a place where they have to solve it to continue. Uh, If you're going to put a puzzle in, like say you're doing a riddle that you have to solve, put it as the lock for a treasure chest where there's some special treasure inside that, you know, the PCs could unlock, but if they can't figure it out, it's not it, the end of it's, the world. It's, it's they like, might come back to it later. It's like a shortcut or a secret room yeah. in a video game. Like, this is not the critical path oh, of exactly. your story, because this is just something extra. You run the risk of, well, I, I guess we can't figure that out. I guess we're going home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for What about social encounters? When you're dealing with, uh, I think one of the bigger things for social encounters is like the example that comes to mind immediately for me is you're in a throne room trying to convince a king or some nobles or lord or whatever that you need to like hey we need to borrow your armory real quick now or you we need you to give us something or the person wants something from the players Mm -hmm. how do you go about designing something like that so with social encounters so much depends on the circumstances like using your example with the king in his court you're going to have a certain set of people you're probably going to have a king maybe a queen some courtiers you might have a royal vizier or somebody you might have the the captain of the guard or people there there's so many different variables it's hard to have a hard and fast rule there are a couple of things i do when preparing for it though um, i try not to have more than two or three voices in a given social encounter because you don't want the pcs to be well the players to be sitting back and thinking okay when's the dm going to be finished speaking he's having a conversation with himself and has been for half an hour yep 
one of the games I ran was a wizard's game, the Tyranny of Dragons campaign, and there's war councils, and I was co-DMing with my buddy Mike, and we would, we really, really tried to make that work. We really tried. We took the list of about 15 NPCs, all of whom represented various countries. We divvied them up. We had meetings where we would have talking points so that it wasn't just one person talking with themselves, and it still wound up falling flat. It's one of those things. Like Certain parties will engage with it more. The party we had wasn't so interested in the politics, and so we tried to streamline it, and we tried to at least get our points across and have it flow a little better. Social encounters are kind of a weird beast because, like, with combat encounters, you know when it's over. Either the party runs away, or the enemies run away, or one half of the combatants are dead. Puzzle encounters, it's also, it's binary. Like, you have solved the puzzle, or not. With social encounters, it's it feels like it's this weirder, squishier ball of, like, did you get everything that you wanted, or... Did they get everything that they wanted? Like, how, like, how do you design something where, like, a, an NPC, like, wants A and possibly B, and if they can get away with C, like, those kind of, like, weird, malleable things? For me, I tend to have a rough idea of who this person is, what they're doing there, and how they feel about it. So I'll try and, you know, in an example of a king, is he secure in his role? Or are there problems? Are there challenges to his rule? How long has he been on the throne? That's all going to color how he how he reacts and what he's looking for. Uh, like a, a king who's very new to power might be looking for allies, might be looking for that out of the PCs. He might want them to swear allegiance to him in exchange for his help. Uh, a king who's old and established, he might want the PCs to go take care of something for him or... Uh, you know, maybe appear at a uh, at a banquet with him as kind of a political support. It, it, there's so many different variables. Um, when I'm trying to prepare for a social encounter, what I'll often do is uh, think about the first impression. What is the NPC going to think when they see your PCs for the first time? Because their reaction to a party of humans is going to be very different from the reaction to a party of half-orcs. Or if, if your party is all human and one elf, and this nation hates elves, that is going to color the, the perceptions. If, you, one of your, if your lead character is walking up with the fist of Bane on her chest, that's going to make a huge impact on how the, PC, or how the NPC reacts. Okay, so a hypothetical here, with, with coming back to your encounter. Uh, I'm playing your ranger. There's four of us in the party. I don't want to waste my arrows on a couple of goblins. So I decide I'm going to go forward with intimidation. I'm going to try and use one arrow to do an impressive shot and see if I can't intimidate them into just scattering. How do you approach something like that? So the goblins, they have their wagon. They have their bugbear, who's their leader. And I've noted down in my notes that the bugbear is cruel and is a bully, as many bugbears are. So, so long as the bugbear isn't intimidated, the goblins aren't going anywhere. Makes sense. However, if that shot across the bow were to strike the bugbear or come close to him, or if the intimidate roll was particularly good, 
the bugbear might slink off into the shadows, or depending how good, the bugbear might just turn and run. And without the bugbear there to anchor, the goblins are going to run away. Which actually is another thing I wanted to mention. When it comes to an encounter, you want to design an encounter, not a combat. There's always there's always a temptation to be, you come down the road, you see goblins, roll initiative. You want to give the PCs a chance to do something like try to intimidate them or try to talk to them. Maybe, maybe one of the PCs is a goblin and wants to try and negotiate. I think that's the, the, the thing you've been saying about like creatures in this encounter. Like, why are they there? What are they thinking? And all that stuff. I think that should be at the forefront of your mind when you're building and eventually when you start to run it. Because players, they're all going to be thinking that about their characters. And they're going to be thinking like, okay, my character just came around a bend and saw these goblins. Like, what is he going to do in this moment? So treating all the creatures you put into the encounter the same way lets it happen more organically. Maybe maybe there is a big knockdown fight, or maybe mm-hmm. you intimidate them, or maybe you pay them off. Like, there's so many ways that it can end that, yeah, coming around the corner and just saying roll initiative is doing a disservice to your players. I think it's a really common bad habit that DMs fall into, and I think everybody falls I've into done it, it, too. I've, I've definitely done it. Yeah. But it's like, and I guess it depends what you put the encounter there. If you're like, this will be a fun light fight before things get serious. Like, I get that you want to approach it that way, but sometimes you have to be willing to be like, Okay, they don't want to fight. This is fine. Some of the most memorable encounters are the ones the PCs avoid. So, you've kind of gone over this a little bit already, but uh, like, so for your your encounter of the the six goblins and the bugbear, this kind of builds on the the adding challenges. Like, how do you how do you populate an encounter once you've decided? Like, maybe you started with I want it to be goblinoid, or you want it to be an ambush, like. Once you've got that like story hook or that starting point, how do you decide exactly what's going to be in this encounter? I did uh, I did start with goblins specifically because this adventure I'm putting together is goblin themed, uh, and this would be the first encounter to kind of introduce the PCs to the idea that goblins are pushovers and they're probably not that dangerous, and then to later show them that maybe they are a little more dangerous, especially when they're not entirely goblins. But, uh, so in this case, I look through the monster manual and every monster has a challenge rating associated. So you've got your XP budget for an encounter, which the DMG does a great job of uh, breaking down how much is a difficult or... So for third level PCs, this is a medium encounter worth 500 XP. So it's not super challenging, it's just a little bit short of medium encounter, but there are a couple of ways I've put in to spice it up. Uh, so goblins, and I put a bugbear in because bugbears and goblins often go together. But I was any other challenge rating one monster could work. Uh, for instance, in the goblin entry, there's a goblin boss instead, and that would give the encounter a different context. If you used a goblin boss, they are experts at letting other creatures take hits for them. So a goblin boss would be hanging out near his goblins, kind of pushing them in the way of attacks, whereas the bugbear would be kind of knocking, like pushing the goblins aside while wading in to just savage people with his morning star. So I guess diving just a little bit deeper, do you always start from challenge rating, or do you decide, like, do you, before you even look at the monster manual, do you think... I want some goblins, or I want I want a Remoraz, or I want a Yeti, or like, do you ever 
kind of populate the monsters before thinking challenge rating, or is it always almost figuring always. out figuring out challenge rating and then finding monsters that fit? Um, and actually adding to that, because I know you're a big fan of doing this, and sometimes monsters don't fit thematically as they're presented in the books. How do you approach reskinning monsters? I'm so glad you asked. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, I I definitely was thinking goblins, and I know bugbears pair with goblins. Um, that's something like I've been playing D anD D for so long, and bugbears, goblins, and hobgoblins all are kind of a big family, so they're very similar monsters. So they they kind of naturally thematically work together, uh, and they have a, a pre existing relationship that I'm kind of using for this. So I I put them together, and where I the XP comes in is when I'm determining how many of them to put in, but. One of the uh, notes I have here is that I could actually change some of the goblins out for Grimlocks. Because Grimlocks are the same challenge rating as goblins, but they're a slightly different monster. Uh, Grimlocks have a little more hit points. They hit a little harder, but they're a lot easier to hit and a lot less sneaky. If I wanted to put them in and just make two different types of goblins in the encounter, what I could do is take Grimlock stats and flavor it as a goblin. Kind That's like a, just a bulkier, yeah, big, bigger goblin. goblin. Slightly taller, a little bit meaner. Yeah, exactly. Carrying a different weapon. You know, the thing you have to do is use a bit of common sense. Like, for instance, these brute goblins would not have blindsight like yeah. Grimlocks do. Uh, but they would have the goblin shifty ability where they can hide as a bonus action. They would get that instead. You know, you just got to make things that Makes sense. So it's it's really easy to switch things out, to reflavor things, to slip things in. You just have to kind of see what makes sense for your uh, for your encounter. And so now that you've you figured out like that story hook, you've uh, figured out why this encounter is there, why, what's probably going to happen, some possible story paths. You've populated it. How do you decide beforehand? Not while you're running it, but beforehand. What are some of the things that would make you say, like, okay, this encounter is over now? Like, some natural stopping points that you might design into an encounter. More or less, if the bugbear is dead, the encounter's over. The sure. goblins aren't brave enough to stick around. Right. Are there, for, for this encounter specifically, are there other stopping points that you could, that you would think, like, there, there are definitely thousands upon thousands upon thousands <laughs> that the players might come up with, but... Is that, like, for an encounter like this, is one stopping point, like, kind of really all you care about? Or, yeah. I don't usually pre-plan stopping points. Mm -hmm. Instead, as a DM, as I'm running the combat, I'll watch for combat to reach a natural stopping point. Like, if there's only one goblin left, I probably don't need to roll it out to see if the goblin manages to get a lucky hit in on a player. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I have been struggling with because it feels <laughs> like, and this is probably just I don't have enough experience designing dungeons, um, so it, sometimes it feels like I'll have an encounter where halfway through the combat I probably could just go, and you guys mop them up, no problem. Like, how as a dm do you like is that just something you figured out over your two decades or is uh that... yes and i it's not always the right call yeah different groups will have different ideas on that talk to your groups dms okay and basically because on one hand you're saving everyone time and it can take a couple of like 
you know, it can take like 15 or 20 minutes to finish killing the two goblins if the attack rolls go badly to, to basically no end. At the same time, if I as a player am sitting there and I haven't had the chance to do anything all combat and then I finally got this goblin in my sights and the DM you're, says... You're a rogue okay. who's been sneaking around in the back yeah. trying to line up that shot. And the DM says, okay, uh, yeah, you guys mop up the rest of the goblins. I'll feel a little cheated. So you gotta... It's something that I would say use sparingly. I, I guess... And as you become more experienced, you'll have a better sense of... Uh, it definitely sounds like it's something that you get a sense of with each campaign a little bit because yes. it's based on the group would you ever uh consider doing something like hey do you guys want to end this combat right now if i take like like you say if i take some hp from all of you to just no no you wouldn't never no no i would i would ask do you want to mop this up and if the piece like if there's any danger of the pcs losing a significant chunk of hit points i would never suggest it okay um and I would I wouldn't want to put to the party that they can buy off an encounter with their hit points. It feels cheap. Fair enough. So maybe a more specific uh, example about deciding when an encounter ends, because uh, I know a problem that I've had and that I think I've seen other DMs have is when they build an encounter where they fight what you want to be a recurring villain. How do you decide just when to pull the villain out and how to do it ahead of time? Because the Sometimes you get the just, and then they get away, and that kind of sucks as a player. I guess one thing that I would say is, um, just from like a a player's perspective, and a little bit from a DM perspective, it it would feel weird to be fighting something that is meant to become a recurring villain, because as soon as you get into combat, there's always a chance that players will kill it, and then you're... Well, that, that's what I'm asking for, though, because sometimes very, they got to get into the combat. Very experienced DMs have all asked that question. The, the thing is, um, for my money, what I'd like to do is anybody on the table is fair game. The monster or the villain has to escape honestly, and if they don't, then they bite it. Yeah. Then I guess uh, now give them tools to do it. Like if if you're running a spellcaster, giving them a teleport spell or even a scroll or a dimension really, door or dimension door. Like, I royally pissed off my players with <laughs> dimension door once. And and if you do it repeatedly, it can get really frustrating. There's nothing more frustrating as a player than having the DM pull the villain out of fight. Like never as a DM build an encounter where the plan is for one of the monsters to live. If the monster lives, if they escape, great. But if they get killed, your PCs will love you for letting it stand. Your PCs will absolutely recount the day when they shot the villain mid-monologue and killed him with a lucky crit till the end of time. Well, I guess I guess the thing is, that maybe what Jesse might be getting at is, it feels awesome when it is... Like the fifth time that you've run into this villain, but it is if it's your like first or second encounter and the players still feels awesome. If it's if it's some guy that yelled at you and then you got into combat and then you kill them, cool. We killed a guy that just started to piss us off, and that's the beauty of it because then you can, as the DM, just recycle him, change the flavor a little bit, and he becomes the real villain. If he hasn't made enough of an impact to be a villain to your players. You don't lose anything by just changing the name and the appearance a little bit and reinserting it. Maybe giving him like fifty if more he, hit points. I th- well, I think I, I think where I'd probably go is just like, oh, he, he died, but there was a man behind the man. 
And a man behind sure. the hand behind the man. That's that's another way to do it. Uh, another great way to do it is don't have a villain, have a villainous organization. Because then you can have these recurring members and some of them get killed off, some of them are interfering elsewhere. It's very easy to bring in the next level up of that organization and it really... I think that probably requires a little bit more planning because oh, like, if you start off with them fighting the head of the organization, they're probably going to be fighting some, like, if they're, like, first session, like, no, they're going to probably be fighting some lieutenant or Let something. Let me put it this way. In my encounter with the goblins and the bugbear, the bugbear works for somebody. Who is it? Right. If they kidnap the bugbear, they can interrogate him and find out and ask him. And they'll find out that he's been sent by Bogorok. Who is a terrifying goblin who never comes out at uh, except at night to feed. And they will be absolutely horrified at this. But I don't need to I don't need to develop who Bogorok is working for. I don't need to keep going up the pyramid. If you're ever in a position where you need to know the next person, just give them a cool name. You don't have to have anything jotted down. Be vague and threatening and then when you have a chance to prep, prep the hell out of it. If the players find out, oh, there's a man behind the man. Okay, well, I guess I don't have to prep him right now. Yeah. So you, you got a lot, of, a lot of stuff there. You just want to let the encounter play out. I, I always hate having an end to the encounter in mind because it means that I'm, I, I want to be flexible to if the PCs just totally take things off the rail. So I find... Personally, the best way for me to do it is not to have a an end in mind. I guess the only counter example I could think of is a timed encounter where it's like, there are eight rounds and then yep. the ceiling collapses. Like, And that can be absolutely awesome. Just a brilliant encounter. I've done that with a flooding room. I've done that like, where there's a trap. I've had a, a, an encounter in a room where it's basically these little alcoves off of a giant track with a rolling boulder that rolls back and forth across the combat encounter. So if they push anyone into the track of the boulder, the boulder can run them over. <laughs> I think this actually brings us really nicely to our next question, which is how can DMs add some challenge to encounters without actually increasing the CR and throwing more monsters in the mix? Traps! <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of uh, great ways to do it to add the difficulty. You can have the monsters use terrain. So if there's areas like if there's a balcony, you can put archers on it. They can be up higher, taking cover from below. Like with your example, the goblins being able to hide in the yeah. Like this is kind of one of those weird things where it's, is the goblin CR based entirely just on HP and damage? Because like because this is what I've realized with goblins, as soon as they start hiding, they become these really annoying things suddenly it can be kind of a pain to track them down and hurt them to get them to run away yeah there's uh there's not really a cr guideline for that kind of thing you just have to recognize as a dm and this will come with experience that putting a ton of goblins starting in hiding makes things a lot more difficult but bear in mind so these goblins some of them are hiding in the woods some of them are out by the wagon the ones that are hiding in the woods are also hidden from their friends. So the PCs, if they decide to do a stealthy approach, they can get advantage on those guys. They can sneak up behind them and take out the goblin archers unseen, unheard. I'm a firm believer that any terrain you put down, any kind of uh, things like this, 
you want to have the PCs be able to use it as well mm -hmm. if they're inclined to do so. Right. Also, with regards to making an encounter more difficult, you can have reinforcements arrive. Um, that's one of the beautiful things is you put an encounter together. I have my six goblins and one bugbear. The PCs come in and one of them just drops a spell that burns down four of my goblins in the first round. Four more goblins could show up. They get the XP for it. Now this is a little bit, I am bumping up the CR of the encounter, but I can see and react and have these additional reinforcements to come up so that it's a more satisfying fight. To me, that immediately feels very tricky because it's walking that fine line of, I guess it, I guess it comes back to knowing what your players want. Because if your players come into an encounter like this that they know they can mop the floor in two rounds and their sorcerer wipes out half of the goblins or all of the goblins in their first action and then you immediately bring in more, like that feels like one of those things that without knowing how your players will react, it could go bad. It's true. If the PCs have done like a very thorough job of scouting and making sure there's no reinforcements, I'm not going to suddenly add reinforcements. <laughs> also, they parachute in from the sky! <laughs> also, this is more if, uh, if you can tell your party is spoiling for a good fight, something that's really a, a throwdown encounter, and you only have something, this is a medium encounter, and you can tell they're just looking to like, lean into some combat. You could bump it up to a hard encounter, but you don't have to do it right away. You can have some monsters show up later on, or even plan the encounter that way initially. Yeah, and if, like, for this example, if the sorcerer drops a bomb and is, like, kills all of them and is like, yeah, that was awesome, this is great, I'm super impressive, that's that's usually a pretty good sign to go, like, yeah, I'll leave the encounter at that then. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. Someone got, got lots of joy out of that, that's great. Absolutely. And uh, you can have it both ways, too. You can have that moment where it's like, oh, I wiped out a ton of goblins, and more goblins show up. Maybe they don't show up right away. Maybe they show up at the end of round three or round four, just when things are looking like the goblins are mopped up. Maybe the goblins are about to run, but more show up. Um, or the players are getting ready to like turn this wagon around. It's like, okay, now you've got, like, if you can get it turned around quick enough, then yeah. So one of, one of the other things, too, is you can use equipment and surprises to really boost the difficulty of an encounter. Uh, one of my notes is here for this encounter is that one of the goblins has a jar full of bees. So the goblin, one of his first actions is going to be to hurl that jar towards the party. It will burst and unleash an insect swarm into the fight. Please tell me you would describe that goblin as being stung all to hell already. Like he's already <laughs> just covered in like welts. Oh, he absolutely would be. And the thing is, too, this insect swarm is not on anyone's side. This becomes a terrain hazard. So the goblin throws, and maybe he misses. <laughs> he flubs it and it lands <laughs> at his feet. And if, if you see the goblin coming out with the jar, they might shoot him. He drops it on himself. Insect swarm is right there. There's so many ways that could play out. Oh, yeah, like... Um, and that just... It makes the encounter more difficult, but also more interesting. And it's something the piece... The, like, your players might remember down the line. Well, that would be great, too, if, like, say, their archer's ready in action to attack this one that comes within range. And the guy throws the bees, and he's like, can I use my attack to hit that midair? Yes. And you have advantage, because you have a ready in action. So far, we've been talking about building an encounter beforehand. This is something that you've kind of planned, like... Your players were going from one city to another, or they went out to do a thing, and they ran into this. Not super often, because I'm not really a huge believer in random encounters, but 
it's probably it's going to happen where you're going to need to come up with an encounter whether it's combat or social or probably not puzzle i don't think you're probably gonna have to suddenly come up with oh my god and there's a door with a scroll and you need to uh, um this is probably more just social and combat but how do you deal with having to throw together an encounter on the fly yeah I do usually have a list, like a, a couple of encounters in reserve. Like all, if they're wandering around a kingdom and I know there's wolves in the area, I might have a wolf pack and it'll be on a little card. It'll be sitting there. If I need a random encounter, I can have them encounter this or in a dungeon, I'll have something. I might, if I'm building a whole dungeon, I might just have an idea of generally what type of creatures are here from the planned encounters, and I might pick a couple of them to be encountered elsewhere. What about something a little bit more random, like they've they've gone into a mid-sized town and they went drinking and they, like, one of them completely flubbed a, a charm or an intimidation, and now they're in a bar brawl, and then the <laughs> city guards show up. Like, dealing with that kind of... Like, so, like, suddenly, like, suddenly so, there's a thing happening now. Through a lot of experience running the game, I have a pretty good idea of what certain stat lines look like. So I can throw together, you know, this drunk has disadvantage because he's drunk. He has a strength of 12, so he has plus one and plus one for proficiency. So he's rolling at plus two with disadvantage. And so I find it really easy to throw something like that together and just say, oh, and there's six of them. Well, and um, for Fifth Ed, especially for something like City Guard, there's lots of yeah. stuff either at the back of the... The very the back of the Monster Manual. The, Monster Manual. the very back of the Monster Manual oh. has a appendix with a ton of beasts and then an appendix with uh, NPCs. Commoners and NPCs. And I really wish there was more of them because those are so very useful. I've, I've actually found a couple of resources online, but they're a little bit more like different people in an army and stuff like that. Yeah. But I, yeah, I guess that, yeah, at the end of the day, like, it's kind of the thing with a lot of things we've been asking. Like, building encounters is one of those things that there aren't really any hard and fast rules for. It's really like getting a feel for your players, for your party, and just the system you're working in and knowing how mm-hmm. to throw things together. It is difficult to throw an off-the-cuff encounter. That's something that becomes more and more easy as you're as you're more familiar with uh, DMing. Just because the more combats you run, the more you get a sense of how different monsters operate, how effective they are. What, what you could just run as a skill challenge, even. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that we don't have on our list of questions that just occurred to me is rewarding your players. Um, how, when you're designing an encounter, especially, I think this... probably applies a little bit more to combat than but could apply to social ones as well with a combat encounter like this where you've got your six goblins the bugbear and a merchant um the players will probably expect some kind of reward outside of xp Uh, or if they're fighting in a in a tomb or a dungeon somewhere they're going to expect something different than what you would reward them with here how do you I know that there's stuff in the DMG, but it's also just like, how do you decide, like, this is going to be the, like, minimum that they'll get? So there's treasure. Treasure is obviously an important part of any D&D game. If they're rescuing the merchant, they're going to expect to get paid. And rightly, they should. 
where you really can stand out as a DM is by providing other forms of payment. Things like favors that could be called in later. Uh, you could have, maybe the merchant is transporting bottles of rare wine and he'll give one to the party as, as thanks. Some of these things could be treasure hooks. Like maybe he's got an old journal that belonged to his father with a map to some sort of a treasure vault. And he could give that to the PCs and then they've got something to go on. And then it's not just, oh, I overheard this in town. Let's go check it out. Or the king asked me to look at this. They're like, oh, this, this is uh, some clues and some notes. But moreover, in this specific instance, this merchant, in this particular adventure, the PCs are supposed to be local heroes. So they're well known. So the merchant is delighted to see them. And is going to send, uh, basically, like, get them to help him back to town. And he is going to arrange for a grand feast to be thrown in their honor. And at that feast, he will come around and try to encourage the PCs to marry his daughters. That's pretty good. and I, that's, Aggressively. And that's, and that's the kind of thing that the, I think, one of the things with good encounter building that I've been seeing online and, and here... And just in my with my own experience is that the encounter should always be like a doorway to more things happening. <laughs> that if if there is treasure, yeah, there should be just like they get some monetary reward. But throwing something else that like a bottle of wine that they might be able to trade for favor with the barkeep because it's rare, or the feast where one of them is might get married, or like things like that happening feels like better storytelling than just. Yeah, you rescued him. Here's 100 gold. In a game long ago, I had a bunch of goblins, and one of them was using a painting as a shield that he had ransacked from a noble's manor. So stuff like that could be a lot of fun. Then they also have to be careful how they fight him, because if they hit the shield, they're damaging their treasure. I guess I guess the one concern I would have, though, is, again, keeps coming back to these same things. Of you have to know your players, because yeah. if you decide, like, oh, yeah, he's going to have this rare vintage of wine that you know they could use to trade for favors but all your players care about is gold and getting better equipment then yeah, yeah maybe you like you can't offer them a story hook or a, you know a favor hook through this bottle of wine you have to spell it out a little bit more but you can appeal to that too in a game i ran we gave the one of the characters an inheritance and we didn't tell them what it was, but we told them they were under great time pressure to get to Davendirk. And they got there and were they inherited an entire town, had to nominate their fellow PCs to cabinet positions, and were immediately thrust into the political sphere. And had access to the entire treasury. And we've run this game a couple of times, Ray and I, and every single player has been just delighted with the idea of having all this wealth and power at their fingertips even the players who are mostly in it for just for playing combat i guess that that's that. that's the thing of just like knowing how to how to offer non-money rewards in a way that players will go woo. yeah and those are the ones players will remember they won't remember oh i found uh 100 gold on that goblin i must have robbed somebody important I think the only time that a, a, a mon- money-only reward is memorable is when 
oh, it is a cave five miles long and five miles deep full of gold. <laughs> like, that's memorable. A hundred gold from a goblin, which, yeah, where is he getting a hundred gold? I had players in an old game carry around a duck carving that they took off a goblin after they killed him. A badly carved duck, and they carried it around for nine levels. <laughs> so, um, I think we should start wrapping up. Before we do, wrap up this encounter. Is there anything else that you want to tell us about it? So, I just wanted to reframe this encounter in a different way. So, I've got six goblins and one bugbear. The bugbear is mean, and he's a bully, and he's basically keeping the goblins in, in check. But they're out doing mischief, so all the goblins are having a bit of fun. Uh, so they've got this wagon waylaid, and they're attacking a the merchant, and one of them has a jar of bees that he's just waiting to throw at somebody. And there's the forest to either side of the path, there's the trenches, there's all these things going on. If I were to do the same encounter differently, I could have six goblins and one bugbear. The bugbear was kicked in the head growing up and is dumb as a sack of rocks. And the six goblins are divvying up some treasure while the bugbear just stands there drooling. There's five goblins sitting at the base of the tree, picking through their treasure and divvying it up and fighting over it. And there's one absolutely disinterested goblin sentry up in the tree, paying no attention at all. One of the goblins has a jar full of ants. You can already see how very, very different that encounter is just by changing what they're doing, where they are, and... Like changing just the bugbear. This will play out entirely differently. This has entirely different treasure. There's no merchant. There's no wagon. There's different terrain. There's a tree in the middle. It's got a very different feel to it just by changing the bugbear and changing what they're up to. Mm -hmm. And of course, a jar of ants is very different from a jar of bees. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So final question. Uh, what's one thing you wish you could tell yourself when you first started playing D&D about designing encounters? The DM is not against the players. It is not a competition to see if you can kill the players as fast as possible. It is, you're there to try and facilitate fun. You're trying to make it interesting. You're trying to give them a challenge. But more than anything else, you're there to share in their victory. In over the course of 20 years, I've had a lot of games where I've gotten really defensive. As a DM, it's really easy to start to take it personally when the PCs kill your monsters. When they just absolutely roll in, crit this, knock this down, and just destroy your encounters one after another. You can't take it personally. That's what the monsters are there for. They're there to pose a bit of a challenge and then ultimately to be defeated by the PCs. I think... That is something that I've, I've dealt with a little bit. And it's also realizing that, like, as a DM, you're not telling a story. You're helping your players tell a story. Yeah, I, I totally agree. One of the other things on that same note is don't plan for the villain to escape. Uh, I got in a lot of trouble over the years for having my villain make it out. Even when, like, even when he could have, even when it was... Fair, it still sucks if he does it repeatedly. Well, I once had to run an entire extra story arc because a villain that I never intended to survive did. Oh, yes. <laughs> I remember that. But that was so good. That was such a rich arc because the Oni killed Sirma and then fled. 
and it galvanized the whole party. We all came together with the express intent of tracking him down and killing him as revenge. And it was it, like... That's actually probably when, one of the better parts of whenever, that campaign. <laughs> absolutely. Whenever, as the DM, you don't need to find a way to motivate your players. When your players come to you with motivation great like that's that's the hard part yeah if 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 that problem is solved roll with it (laughs) yeah like too often the the dm will fall in love with what they think is going to happen and any attempt by the players to do something different or to to pursue a different goal is met with is kind of shot down yeah i i really feel that at the end of the day if if you want a certain thing to happen write a short story (laughs) yes um, but yeah, that's. I think that's everything that we all the questions we've got this time. Yeah. Um, Thanks so much for for coming out, Jay. Yeah, it's been a blast. And My I'm, pleasure. I'm sure we'll have you out again sometime. I sure hope so. We have many more things to talk about. Yes, I've seen your list. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks everybody for listening and. Catch you on the f- I, t- t- flip side. I don't have a good tag for this. We don't have a sign off. No. Your, Bye. Your, your Bye. Sign off should be roll for initiative. Oh shit! That's really good, Jay. <laughs> we have a tag now. Roll, roll for, for initiative. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, and we do have a social media presence, so please, uh, on Twitter or our Facebook page, uh, DMs of Vancouver, uh, come check it out. And uh, please check out our shows on iTunes and Google Play. Uh, please, you know, rate and subscribe and maybe share them with your friends. If you like the show, tell some folks about it. Yeah. See you next time. Yeah, thanks a lot.